John Henry Cole is the captain. Boss man, do you ever pray? Well, if I miss this deal, let this hammer get away. Mara be your barren day. Lord, Lord. Mara be your barren day. This is on mass, bringing together stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I'm your host, Liz Medina. You are listening to Episode 5, titled Everybody's Got to Live, featuring the story of Melichenda, an Italian cook and caterer. In the previous episode, we heard the story of a switchboard operator named Palmira Fernandez. Her parents, in search of better lives, had emigrated to the United States when she was a little girl. Like many other immigrant families in Barrie, her father worked in the granite industry as a stone carver. Having seen how the industry killed workers, he didn't want Palmyra dating a granite worker. So instead of working as a granite worker's housewife, she joined the growing numbers of women working outside the home as wage laborers. In this episode, we will listen to the story of Meli Chanda, who followed her husband from Italy to the United States after he found work in Barry's granite industry. Her husband was a stone carver. Italians were some of the finest stone carvers in the world because of Italy's excellent art schools. Unfortunately, her husband's job cost him his life, a tragedy that was all too common in the granite industry. Life was hard for everyone connected to the granite industry, especially the families. One of the biggest causes of their hardship was silicosis. We heard a bit about silicosis in Donegal's story in episode 3. Because silicosis so radically transformed Melichanda's life, it deserves some more attention in this episode. Silicosis, also known as granite cutter's consumption at the time, is an occupational lung disease caused by all the fine silica particles found in materials like granite. All of the sawing, sanding, and carving done by stone cutters and carvers released tons of fine silica dust into the air. And unlike their counterparts back in Italy, granite workers in Barrie worked indoors, which increased their exposure. The dust then cut up and damaged their lungs over time. The symptoms of silicosis are shortness of breath, coughing, and blue skin, but it also weakens the lungs to such an extent that it makes them vulnerable to other diseases. In the early 20th century, it made them especially susceptible to tuberculosis. A study published in 1937 found that over 75% of granite cutters and 53% of all other granite workers died from tuberculosis caused by silicosis, whereas only 3.5% of Vermont's general population died from tuberculosis that year. To have either silicosis or tuberculosis was a death sentence at the time. To make things worse, tuberculosis is a highly contagious disease. Back then, it could wipe out a granite worker's entire family. Husbands, wives, and children all suffered from the poor, unregulated working conditions in the granite industry. Outside of town, on top of a hill, stood the Washington County Sanitarium. It was an ominous institution, and even though it was hidden from the busy streets of downtown, 
it nonetheless haunted the psyches of granite workers and their families. To compound the difficulty of losing a spouse, widows like Meli Chenda were living during one of the worst economic crises in history, and in a time before welfare and workers' compensation. Knowing the risks of the industry, some families purchased life insurance policies or were members of mutual aid societies. Private insurers exploited the tragedies of granite workers. They charged exorbitant fees, and their policies barely covered a family's expenses for more than a couple of years. According to the oral history of a Barry insurance salesman, They have to pay, and pay well. Lots of them can't pass the physical examinations anyway. The poor bastards. I've sold a good many policies to stonecutters. Mutual aid societies, run for the benefit of their members instead of profit, may have been a slightly better option. All members would put in a little money and withdraw money when they needed it. For example, when a family's primary earner died. Some societies also sold life insurance. The Modern Woodman of America, which is still in existence, is a mutual aid fraternal benefit society. They had a big presence in the Barry community. They sponsored family banquets and picnics. Their events, as if compensating for the tragic reason for their existence, were full of dancing and merriment. Scottish girls dressed up in bull tartans jumped up and down to bagpipe music, here and there kicking their legs in the air. A more informal kind of mutual aid popular in Barrie at the time was funding a widow's purse, which consisted of small donations collected from the community. But it was never enough. Melichanda still had to find work when there was hardly any. Being a woman, she faced the additional burden of job and wage discrimination. The New Deal work relief programs that were just underway during Melichanda's time were mainly in male-dominated industries, such as construction. The New Deal even implemented a pay scale that set lower pay rates for women. So instead, Meli Chenda joined the millions of other women across the nation in doing even more of the work they were already doing, such as sewing, cooking, cleaning, or laundering. Meli Chenda's paid work was on top of all the unpaid work she had to do for her family. Her shift never ended. It couldn't if she wanted her family to stay out of poverty. As if all these pressures weren't enough, the police were constantly watching immigrants like her. Meli Chenda's oral history was recorded by Mary Tomasi as part of the Federal Writers Project. It was likely recorded between 1936 and 1939, during the Great Depression. Jenny Blair will be performing Melichenda's story. I'm getting dinner ready for a party of 12 people, all from Montpelier. Not Italians. Italians know how to make their own Italian dinners. These Americans. In the winter, I get about two orders a week for good-sized dinner parties. In the summer, not so many. They like to get out then in their cars and stop at different places to eat. Always they want ravioli for their dinners. And some want spaghetti at the same meal. Me, I think it is foolish to have both at the same dinner. They're almost the same, except that the ravioli are stuffed. 
But if that's what they want, me, I don't care. It means more money for me. I've been doing this kind of work for 10 years or so, since my husband died. Quite a few women in Barrie earn money this way. It's a funny thing. In Italy, I was always too busy to think much of food. I lived in the Lake Como district up north. Our house was on a hill outside the city. My two sisters and me would go to the city every day to work in the mills. Silk mills. We were so hungry at noon, we were satisfied with any kind of food. We carried our lunch with us. Polenta and cheese tasted as good to us then as chicken does today. We liked good food, but we were always too busy and didn't have enough money to eat. Over there, it seems funny to be cooking meals for people who got no more money than me. It's in the last 10 years that American people have been asking for Italian food. Many Italian women have machines to make these raviolis. I haven't got one. They're quite expensive. And anyway, I'd rather make them by hand. They look better when they're made by machine, but they taste the same. We always made them this way in the old country. We never had any machines to help us. Our fingers were the machines. I never saw the machines until I came to this country. I came over when I was 18 years old. I wasn't married then. I came over here to marry Pietro. I grew up with Pietro. I went to school with him. We were always good friends in the old country. He came over here to work in the sheds. Every month, I got a letter from him. He told me how good the granite business was. He asked me to marry him. So I wrote back, yes. I came over here in August. I liked Barry. It didn't seem strange to me. We were married right away. And right away, a great many people came to visit me. Italian people. Not many I know, but all Italian people from the north of Italy who spoke my Italian and lived the way I lived. I had no time to be lonesome. My Pietro, he worked in the sheds for 15 years. Always he was not satisfied. Always, he said, someday he would find other work. But no other work he found. He caught a bad cold one winter. The doctors, they all said his lungs were already weak. Couldn't stand the added sickness. He died. Well, I was with four children, all young enough to be in school. So I said to myself, you gotta earn some money, Melichenda. You gotta earn a little money to add to the insurance money Pietro left. 
So I started to cook meals for these American people. They like Italian food, and they pay good money for it. It was work I could do at home. So I tried to get as many orders as I could. One Italian woman, a friend of mine, does the Italian cooking for one of the restaurants. But me, I don't want to bother with that. I got enough to do. I got one girl in her last year of high school. I got to keep the house for her. The other three children are married. The boy is in the printing business in Boston. And the two girls both live outside the state. They were both married before they were out of high school three years. I'm glad for them. They got nice homes, and they're happy. I'm happy they didn't marry stonecutters. Always with them, it is worry, worry. Worry about their health, and worry about how many days a week they work. No matter how good-looking a man is, or how good he is, I never would say to a girl, marry him, this stonecutter. No. Less than 20 years I had with my Pietro. That is too little. The girls, they didn't like it when I started to get meals for Americans. They said, you're as good as they are. Why do you get dinners for them? They didn't understand much about money then. They didn't know that you have to work to make a living. They learned soon, soon. They worked three years after they were out of high school. They learned it took money to live. Libera, the youngest girl, doesn't mind. Sometimes she helps me wait on tables. She even helps me get the meals. It's different now. People don't look down so much on how you earn your money. It's a good thing. Everybody's got to live one way or another. After Pietro died, I had to figure out a way to live. I said to myself, I have the house. Small as it is, it's mine and all paid for. I have a little insurance money, but there are four children. I gotta make that money stretch. So I began taking orders for dinners. And sometimes, if the neighbors were sick, but not sick enough for real nurses, I took care of them. They liked someone who spoke their own tongue. I don't do much nursing now. It's different. Many Barry-born Italian girls have graduated from our hospital. They know 20 times more about nursing than I do, and they speak Italian well enough to understand the patient. I like to work like this, here, in the house. I know where every pan is hung, where every spice is kept. Sometimes, my customers want me to cook in their own homes. Well, I do not refuse, but I charge them more. I don't bother to fix the table pretty. I figure my customers come here to eat, not to look at my table. Oh, I fix the food fancy, so it will look good to the eyes, too. And I give them plenty. That's what they pay for. 
I charge them $1.25 each. That isn't too much. First, I serve them a big platter of stuffed celery, thin slices of salami and mortadella, ripe olives and pickles. Then the ravioli with a rich tomato sauce. If they want spaghetti too, well, I give them the spaghetti as well. The little Italian rolls are good with ravioli. I don't make them myself. I buy them from the Italian baker down the street. Just before it is time to serve the dinner, I sprinkle them with milk and put them in the oven for a few minutes to heat them. Dessert? No, I never serve dessert. The ravioli are so rich that I make a dish that will cut the richness. I give them a salad of lettuce, endive, tomato, onion, celery, mixed with vinegar and olive oil. I use the wine vinegar. It gives a better taste to the salad. With the dollar and a quarter dinner, I serve just one glass of red wine. If they want more, they gotta pay for it. Tonight, my customers will get here at 7 o'clock. They won't leave until 11. I know. They've been here before. It is a crowd of young people who work in the offices in Montpelier. They will drink about $5 worth of wine before they go home. Sometimes, one or two of them bring a pint of their own whiskey. They want to drink it here. Well, I don't refuse but it's not so much profit for me when they don't buy my wine. You know what happened to a friend of mine last summer? She's a woman my age, and she earns a living getting dinners, like I do. She got a dinner for 16 people. Fried chicken dinner, she charges $1.54. Well, not one of those 16 people bought wine. Not one glass. They drank whiskey they had brought with them. About half past ten, policemen come in the house. Three of them to raid it. Well, they go down cellar and they find the same kind of whiskey that is on the table. They want to arrest the woman. She says no, that she hasn't sold any. Her customers, they all say no too. Well, the police can't prove she sold it. They don't do anything to her. But after that, they watch her close. She doesn't do much business now. She's afraid to sell wine. Why don't the police leave us alone? We gotta make a living. We hurt no one. I know it's against the law, but just the same, it's an honest way to live. There are worse ways of making a living, and the law says nothing about it. I've never been raided. Maybe someday I will. That was Jenny Blair performing Melichenda's story. Jenny Blair is a freelance writer, editor, and MD. She has contributed articles on science, medicine, and culture to a wide range of publications, including New Scientist, The Washington Spectator, and The Hartford Current. Despite many differences, Jenny did find a lot of parallels between Melichenda's world and her own. Melichenda lost her husband Pietro to what sounds like a lung ailment. 
And I don't know the statistics, but I know that silicosis is a menacing disease that affects people who work with certain kinds of sand and stone and other materials. And I sensed from her story that he knew that his work was hurting him, that it was injuring him in some way, and that he worried about it. And I guess this is, again, something that in some ways has not changed. There are people who are stuck in industries that are harmful or living in places where the air pollution is so bad that it sets them back and sets their children back. So there is that public health angle to this that is really tragic. I am guessing Pietro was very young when he died, probably only in his 40s. And that's horrible. And he was doing it to create granite, which is, if I'm not much mistaken, somewhat of a luxury item. It's just, it's unfortunate. I guess it illustrates the way in which women who lose a husband, whether it be by divorce or death in Melichende's case, are often faced with a pretty steep slide down the class slope. Her daughters sensed this. They sensed that suddenly their mother was put in this almost servile position in serving other people food when before they were a family that was employed in the, the granite industry. I think Melly Chend is a badass. She did what she needed to do. But I don't think there's much likelihood that she earned as much as the family had uh, when her spouse was alive. And that's a problem that continues today. I had a similar slide down the class slope, if you will, when uh, my divorce happened. And it's really, uh, it's an eye-opener. I'd say the biggest lesson I learned was what housing insecurity feels like. I went from thinking I owned a house to not having anything. And I wound up moving in with family and then taking a succession of apartments that taught me what it means to to not have a place to lay your head that feels safe and secure. I had more financial resources than I was willing to spend because I had lost so much money after this marriage ended. So I tried to economize and I was fortunate I had the option of leaving, and I did several times, but it it was extremely sobering to see what people go through who don't have the ability to pick up and leave when people threaten arson in the hallways of their apartment building, when the landlord is a creepy stalker or doesn't ever clear the snow off the sidewalks or turns off the elevator out of spite or allows the basement to be filled with radon and not tell you. It's, you can't know what hunger's like till you've been hungry, and you can't know what housing insecurity is like until you've been there. And reading this story, I'm so glad Melisenda's house was paid for. I, I kind of silently cheered when I saw that because that's a horrible stressor for people of um, lower income in this country, and it's only getting worse. I guess another element to this, and she only alludes to it really, is um, what you might call another form of wealth, which is social wealth. This woman was immediately surrounded by people from her own country, from her own region when she got to this country. And she refers to not being lonesome and mentioning friends who do what she does. That's 
a kind of wealth in itself. It's not the same kind of wealth, and it probably doesn't fill your belly, but she was fortunate to have that community. And I think that's something that people who are lower on the class ladder tend to invest more in. If you're wealthy, you don't need other people. You can buy what you need. If you're not wealthy, if you're lower socioeconomic status, your reliance on your neighbors is at times almost a life and death matter. So apart from it being wonderful to be surrounded by people who care about you and who have your back and whose backs you have, it's also completely necessary if you don't have the kinds of cash resources that will keep you in your house when you have four children. And I would love to hear how she and her fellow Northern Italians in Barrie work together to keep each other afloat in what must have been some really difficult times. Mali Chenda and I are both self-employed, so we have something in common. She's a woman who was stuck into a difficult situation with the death of her husband and four children, and she decided to use her wits to support herself and her family and operate outside formal employment with its controls, its protections, its freedoms, uh, and do her own thing. And uh, that's that's what I do. I'm a freelance writer. I don't uh, I don't have the security of a paycheck necessarily, but I earn wages, and with that, I have the same kind of freedom in some ways that she does. I can work from home. I can control my work environment. I identify with the things that she likes about her job. Melichenda is a freelancer. She looked at her monetary situation. She thought about what she could do. She assessed the market, and she went into business for herself. Um, she doesn't have a boss. Uh, she doesn't have controls or protections. She doesn't have the security of a pension or a steady paycheck. But she has a kind of freedom that, for example, her husband did not have working where he worked. Um, she can work from home. She can control her environment. That's all familiar to me. I'm a freelancer as well. I've been doing it for 10 years. I work from home as a writer. I set my own hours. I'm, uh, I'm my own boss, and I can tell you my boss is a real jerk sometimes. I remember when I was a kid, I read a novel by Elizabeth George Spear of The Witch of Blackbird Pond fame. She wrote another book that's less commonly read called Calico Captive takes place in the 18th century where a woman is, I guess, kidnapped and brought to Quebec and faces the same kind of dire situation and she goes into business for herself as a seamstress. And she proceeds to have a pretty booming business. I know it doesn't always go that way, but it's just lovely to see women taking initiative with the skills that they have to do what they need to do to support their families, often in situations where that isn't the traditional way of getting by. A lot of women of color, of course, have been doing this for a very long time, working outside the home, earning money for their families, and Melichanda, as an immigrant, uh, was faced with the same necessity, and she rose to the occasion. I think she's a badass. Well, Mali Chenda is a survivor. She's trying to make a living doing something that is quite harmless and that is outside the system. And 
Eric Garner was doing the same thing on Staten Island, selling uh, single cigarettes to make a little cash. And both of them faced police harassment for doing this sort of thing, or were threatened with it in Melichenda's case. It's just these stories, they keep repeating themselves in American history. The, the kinds of workplace protections that make, I hope today, silicosis less common than it was in Pietro's era are the very kinds of protections that I worry that we're going to lose as income inequality gets worse and worse and as big business holds more and more power over people who are desperate for a job. I can imagine, I mean, we're already seeing child labor laws being rolled back or threatening to be rolled back. I, I can imagine the kinds of protections that make it more expensive to run a business, like a stone cutter's suction devices and so on. I worry that those are going to get rolled back in the future, and there are ways in which our era is starting to resemble theirs. Jenny brings up a lot for us to consider in relation to Melichenda's story. To begin where Jenny left off, there is the issue of workplace safety and workers' rights. Melichenda probably knew what was happening to her husband. She probably knew from the dust that made his skin and clothes dull and gray. She probably knew from the coughing that wouldn't cease. She probably knew it was there and that it was killing her Pietro, even when it was all washed away and he glowed like a new man ready in the face from the wine that he probably used to sip in the kitchen while Melichenda cooked their dinner. Melichenda didn't get to have as many of those quiet evenings with her husband as she deserved. As Jenny commented, her husband was sacrificed for luxury items. Rich families vied to outdo one another with bigger memorials and finer embellishments. And the workers paid the price. But workers eventually got together, organized themselves into unions, endured strikes and fought their employers to get proper dust removal equipment, even going so far as sacrificing wage increases in exchange for ventilation systems and dust suction devices. By the early 1940s, dust removal equipment was installed in all the sheds in Barrie. It drastically decreased the number of silicosis cases, but unfortunately, not in time for Melichenda's husband, Pietro. Politicians at the federal level were far behind the granite workers in Barrie. It took until 1996 for our federal government to launch a campaign to end silicosis. It was much the same for other workers in dangerous industries. It took until 1969 for the Federal Coal Mine Health and Safety Act to be passed. Just a few years ago in 2016, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, announced its final regulation to protect workers from silica dust exposure. But in 2017, 
the Trump administration ordered to end OSHA's national emphasis program on silica. Many workers have been left unprotected, and now it will only get worse. Recently, National Public Radio reported that 18 workers have died manufacturing kitchen countertops using artificial stone. Most of these workers are young Hispanic men. Perhaps immigrants like Meli Chenda and her family. And, despite medical progress, silicosis remains a deadly and progressive disease that has no treatment except for lung transplant. Then, Jenny found a powerful connection between Melichenda's story and Eric Garner's. Eric Garner was murdered for selling single cigarettes from packs without tax stamps. Garner was a father of six who could no longer work at his job as a horticulturalist at the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation due to health reasons, and so he sold single cigarettes, or Lucy's, to support his family and get by. Meli Chanda and Eric Garner worked in what is referred to as the informal economy. The International Labor Organization defines the informal economy as work that is outside of the world of full-time, stable, and protected employment. Working at the margins of the economy, Meli Chanda and Eric Garner were vulnerable to police targeting. Sadly, the police have always targeted poor and working-class communities, now more than ever. Police especially target communities of color, often with tragically fatal consequences, an issue that the Black Lives Matter movement has bravely taken up. People with few opportunities for formal employment who are forced to work in legally gray areas receive additional police scrutiny. It should be noted that Melichenda and other European immigrants were generally treated less harshly than people of color were and are. But the fact that all working class communities have been targeted by the police speaks more broadly to the role of the police in maintaining our unequal class society and economic system. Policing expert Bernard Harcourt states that the kind of policing that goes after minor and victimless crimes, which is today referred to as broken windows policing, must be understood at a macroeconomic level. What Harcourt means is that the kind of aggressive policing strategies like broken windows are response to specific social and economic circumstances. Broken windows policing, policing that focuses on small offenses like selling Lucy's or public drinking, came at a particular juncture in American history where there is deindustrialization and a large population of unemployed African Americans on the street as a result. Mass unemployment also marked the Great Depression. At its worst in 1933, 25% of the population was unemployed. Those that are hurt are those who have to work to survive, which is the quintessential characteristic of the working class. Those who are hurt even more are those burdened by other forms of oppression, such as racism and sexism. Survival strategies were even more important for Blacks during the Depression, considering they suffered from the highest unemployment rates. Just as it was the case with women, Blacks received far less support from many of the New Deal programs than whites. But why do the police target poor and working-class communities? It boils down to this. One of the central functions of the police is to act as a form of social control in the interest of the wealthy and powerful, the ruling class. In fact, that was why the police were created in the first place. The origins of the police can be traced back to the slave patrols, which started in South Carolina in 1704. 
The patrols not only recovered escaped slaves, or were viewed as property, they also prevented slaves from secretly organizing themselves. More than an escaped slave here and there, slave owners feared slaves organizing an uprising. These patrols disciplined slaves in order to maintain the social order of a class society in which slaves were at the very bottom. The slave patrols were, at first, loosely organized militias. They were eventually organized into municipal police forces in the 1880s. After the abolition of slavery, these better organized and financed police forces shifted their focus from controlling slaves to controlling a rising class of wage laborers, the working class as we know it. The police were used to break up strikes, especially during the strike wave of 1880 to 1890, when over 200,000 workers went on strike for a shorter working day. The brutal crackdown of these strikes by the police caused the fight for workers' rights to be associated with criminality in our national narrative, turning workers just trying to survive into criminals. The natural progression was to then criminalize entire classes of people. Dr. Gary Potter of Eastern Kentucky University wrote, defining social control as crime control was accomplished by raising the specter of the dangerous classes. The suggestion was that public drunkenness, crime, hooliganism, political protests, and worker riots were the products of a biologically inferior, morally intemperate, unskilled, and uneducated underclass. This underclass was easily identifiable because it consisted primarily of poor foreign immigrants and free blacks. This isolation of the dangerous classes as the embodiment of the crime problem created a focus in crime control that persists today. The idea that policing should be directed towards bad individuals rather than the social and economic conditions that generate crime. This strategy served two functions. One was to divide the working class, making them easier to control by ensuring that blacks, whites, and immigrants, for instance, didn't unite to assert their human rights. The other was to intimidate and thereby discipline not only these so-called dangerous classes, but also the white working class, whose fear garners support for more law and order, broken windows, and tough-on-crime policies. The irony is that these policies end up hurting the white working class, too. While so-called street crime is heavily policed, white-collar crime, which can take down entire economies and ruin people's communities and livelihoods, is ignored. Let's face it, buildings crumble and windows break because white-collar criminals steal our wealth. Meli Chenda's story in Jenny's commentary reminds us that there is still so much work to be done, including work just to protect the gains we've made. Today, the chances of Melichenda's husband, Pietro, dying from silicosis would be much slimmer, thanks to the tireless efforts of the labor movement. And if he was injured or died on the job, she would receive workers' compensation, which was also fought for by the labor movement. And yet, she still may have ended up freelancing or in the informal economy. For all the freedom that comes with being your own boss, there is the fact that over 40% of today's freelancers are not freelancing by choice, but due to not being able to find traditional employment or high enough wages. Most freelance jobs today are part of what has become known as the gig economy, a modern form of piecework, where workers are paid by the gig 
and receive practically none of the benefits and protections of traditional employees who are paid by the hour. These are people driving for Uber or picking up groceries for Instacart or doing odd jobs on TaskRabbit. Then there are all the workers in the informal economy who have no legal protection from the harshest forms of exploitation, like sex workers and domestic workers. Everybody's got to live, but for many, earning enough to make a living is getting harder. Many simply can't keep up and are, as Jenny commented, facing a slide down the class slope. How do you think about class? Do you work in the informal economy or gig economy? Are you a freelancer? Are you a single parent working hard to both raise your kids and to earn a paycheck? Let's keep the conversation going. You can post your stories on our Facebook page, send us a tweet at Podcast, or email us at onmasspodcast at gmail.com. That's E-N-M-A-S-S-E podcast. For the next episode, we will hear the story of a man named Jack, who has worked in the quarries for years. He did all kinds of work in the quarries, including operating the large derricks that pulled huge chunks of stone out of the quarry pits. He's seen all kinds of things down in the quarries. Things that would be unbelievable today. Thank you for listening. We have additional reading materials, archived footage, and show notes on our website. While there, you can give us feedback or suggestions for the next season. This is an independently produced show. I've received support from you, my listeners. If you like this show, go to onmasspodcast.com slash donate to show your support. Special thanks to Jenny Blair for this episode. The song, John Henry, at the beginning of our show is from the Alan Lomax Collection at the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. I'm Liz Medina. This is En Masse, bringing you stories of struggle and hope from the working class.